Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show. I am Louise Salas, the host of the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. And with me, as always, my friend, my partner in crime, the very spirited and very talented, quite lovely, <laughs> Mixtress DC Gina. She's buttering me up. <laughs> I obviously want something. <laughs> Clearly, this is that was way too much of an intro. Um, so, um, yeah, I said you were a little spirited, um, so um, feisty. Yeah, a little bit. But uh, speaking of spirits, <gasps> oh. yeah, today we're not just talking about the kind that you pour into a glass, Gina. We're talking about the kind that you can, you always know they're there. You may not be able to see them, but you definitely feel them. And uh, what uh, more appropriate spot to do that than here in the heart of New Orleans at the Napoleon House. And who better to do that with than with today's designated drinker, um, the executive chef and GM of the Napoleon House, Chris Montero. Hello. Hello, welcome to the show. How are you? Glad you're here, Chef. What a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Chef. Yes, you always, wonderful, wonderful host you are. Thank you, we enjoy it. Great, Um, so um, you've taken Gina and I around and we've got to do the the creepy stairs and go all the way up to the top and not everyone gets to do that, much less with somebody like you who knows like the amazing history of this space and all the nooks and crannies. Um, Of all New Orleans, hello. (laughs) But especially here. Um, So I'd love for you to share some of that, but uh, first, Tell us, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. So as you said, my name is Chris Montero. I'm with the uh, chef of both here and the Cafe Noma at the New Orleans Museum of Art. I've been with Ralph Brennan, the Ralph Brennan Restaurant Group, for this my 20th year. We love Ralph. And I act as a general manager and chef of two locations uh, at the museum. They call me the culinary curator because oh. we're in the Museum of Art. Look at you, fancy. Kind of becoming <laughs> that way here, too, because nice. this amazing entity, the Napoleon House Restaurant and Bar, is as much a museum as it is a restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. And we're learning more and more about it every day. So we're really digging deep into the history of this amazing building. Yeah. Yeah, no pun intended, huh? No pun intended. (laughs) They're all pun intended. (laughs) There's digging going on all around us right now. So uh, tell us a little bit about, I mean, there's so many myths about this place. Wait. What? So we need to get, maybe have like a little bit of energy to this whole story, right? Do it. So we're going to start off our show a little bit different today, and we're going to actually do something with a little bit of cayenne, orange, turmeric, carrot. Just have a little sipper. It's non-alcoholic. Delicious. Nice. Let's if do it. If you feel anything like needed to be alcoholic, you could always add, um, you know, a little bit of uh, gin or something else. But this is this came from a, a little place here where we had a... They mixed it up for me, and um, so I'm bringing it to you. And it is legitimately just those things: orange, cayenne, a little bit of carrot, and it's an energizer. And it said it is said to feed your soul. Oh! So we are going to bring that whole thing to fruition as we hear this story. And of course, nothing's more cleansing than sage. We'll sage our non-little beverage here. For a sipper. What did you say was in the juice again? So it is orange, carrot, cayenne, lemon. Oh, so it's nice. a little bit spicy and it's uh, it's kind of delicious. Sage. We're, we're gonna wake up our spirit. Oh, this and is now lovely. We're gonna it. Now we're gonna now we're gonna totally do it. I'm feeling more soulful already. That's well, amazing. That's oh, amazing. I like the cayenne and the finish. You know, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah, a little heat in it at that back. And the sage in the nose. That's great. 
great. I love good I love stuff. It. Gina, where'd you learn that? I Google. Google. Best juice bar in New Orleans. Founded. Went there. Big hearts to those people. They're amazing. So what if somebody couldn't come all the way to New Orleans? Going to New Orleans, you're going down to the Raw. It's called Raw, and it is. Uh, it's actually amazing. It's just. But what if you're not here? Oh, if you're not here, you go to your local juice bar. You know, talk about what you want. Like they're really great. Like every city has a juice bar now. You know, we don't. If you're in the United States, I guess, I don't know. Yes, most cities have a juice bar right yeah. now. So you go down there and you can just try their specials. And it's amazing. The juicers are just the same thing as bartenders, except in a natural light. So you don't need to have the alcohol if you don't want it. So let me ask you, do you feel it totally appropriate? Like maybe this is somebody's first time going to a juice bar or they only go in and they order exactly what's on the menu. Do you think it's totally appropriate to ask for like adding some combination? Like say they yes. were like, oh, I definitely would like to get the juice. Yes, I think, I think you should experiment. I think you should try something if you've never been and you're it's your first time and like there's a kelp drink on the menu i don't think you should be mixing your own kelp yeah <laughs> but do i think that you can make a combination of orange and grapefruit i'm pretty sure you got that you know so you know you start you start us uh, you know regular and then you get real weird and like that's when you start drinking you kelp get real weird you know real weird saline tonic and you're like i'm feeling very like very uh from the sea today clearly because you're drinking the Ursula special. So there you go <laughs> all right go ahead now i'm ready i'm ready we're all ready where were we so we're gonna start about me. Yes. <laughs> my favorite subject. No. Uh, so I'm in my 20th year with the Ralph Brennan Group, but I started my culinary career here in the French Quarter at the restaurant called Louis the 16th. That was in 1979. I was just out of college. I worked for a French chef, Daniel Bonneau. I did that for several years, but then I departed from the restaurant scene and I became an owner operator of bars and nightclubs for the next on and off for the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, big music clubs here in the city. So I've got a little bit of this background. I've shaken a few shakers over the <laughs> years. Uh, but at the tender age of 40, I decided it was time for me to return to my calling. So I uh, approached Ralph Brennan and he offered me a job at his original restaurant down the street called Baco. And I was there for 15 years or 14 years. And uh, I have a, this is my fifth entity now with uh, with the Ralph Brennan Group. So. Wow. Because I've done a little bit of everything. Don't let the dust settle. Kind of letting the dust settle, <laughs> but far and away, this is the most interesting and intriguing uh, venue I've ever worked in because it's eclectic. Every day there's something new. We might be doing a podcast in one of the old <laughs> apartments here uh, in the building. Uh, we do lots of themed events. What we've really brought to the Napoleon House um, it's got a hundred year history as a bar and restaurant with the Sicilian Italian family. You know, we're famous for muffaladas and pims cups downstairs. Absolutely. Really funky bar vibe and you've got to see it, you know, it's popular in films and so on. But up here on the second floor, a really elegant environment. And that's really kind of our wheelhouse. All my background with the Brennan Group has been fine dining and banquets and parties. And we've really ramped that up. So we're doing a lot of restoration to the building, as you might have noticed. Yeah, um, yeah. We have summertime. just a little bit. <laughs> in the summertime is when we get things done. We try to. It's the slowest time of year. And uh, and so we're restoring these rooms. And, and the banquet business has gone through the roof. And we're doing uh, beautiful you know, we do space. fun stuff up here all the time. A lot of wedding-related events. Oh, so that's become our kind of our real specialty in the last three years since we've been here. It's really stunning Rehearsal space. dinners, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us about the room that we're in. The room that we're in is sort of a transition 
from so so on the a little bit of history about the building right the it, first thing that even many many new orleanians don't realize is that the napoleon house is a national historic landmark right one of very few there are only nine in the french quarter of new orleans and they're the big players right the st louis cathedral and the cabildo and the presbyterian so, and the napoleon house and that's because uh, a national landmark status uh, means that it, it's significant in the history of the united states so this building was built by a prominent gentleman, a family in the turn of that century, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, the Gerard family, the wealthiest family in New Orleans. The middle son, Nicholas Gerard, uh, wanted to add to their business location, which is right behind you on the other side of this wall, that was built in 1797. Wow. And it was their offices. Uh, for this ship import-export company. That makes sense. And when one of the brothers passed away, Nicholas said, I want to live here on the business property. So he built out literally from the other side of that wall forward, and uh, this was all finished in 1812. So this is the original apartment to the, the, this wealthy gentleman. Also, coincidentally, he happened to be the first elected mayor to the city of New Orleans. Oh. So he was elected mayor to the city of New Orleans, the first free election they ever held in the city uh, in 1812, the same year he finished this apartment. Uh, and if you know anything about our history, shortly thereafter, we had the Battle of New Orleans. So this is the sitting mayor of the city uh, in New Orleans when the battle, when this big ev momentous event took place, the last battle of the War of 1812. And that's why we're considered a very uh, historically relevant space here in sure. New Orleans. Yeah. But what about old Napoleon, right? Yeah. So uh, everyone speculated, as you go through this building, you see all, in its time, this was cutting edge architecture and uh, the, the amenities to what he was dead in this building were really over the top for, the, for this day, for 1812. And people began speculating several years into this project that the reason that our friend Nicholas Girard was appointing so many amenities to this building was because he was no doubt going to offer this as residence to Napoleon Bonaparte. Ah, right? bingo. Uh, ding, 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 ding. And that's a wonderful story. We have very little historical uh, evidence of that, but it is not something we make up with tour guides and concierges, right? If you were standing in the city of New Orleans in 1820, the entire city was abuzz and convinced that this was going to be Napoleon's residence, and he up and died the next year in 1821. He died <laughs> in exile in St. Yeah. Helena, and within two years, virtually everyone in the city of New Orleans, so 1822, will refer to this as what would have been Napoleon's house. Oh, right? Yes. And it's never gone away. It's a 200-year story and legend, yeah. and, and everyone firmly believed it then, and we like to firmly believe it now. Yeah, so. Absolutely. So, uh, so with the Gerard House, historically, known widely for 200 years as the Napoleon House here in New Orleans. It's amazing. Beautiful space, right? It's like, a, it is a beautiful space, but that's, you know, it's perfect myth. Bartenders tell lies all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, so. well, you know, you can't prove it, you can't disprove it. <laughs> Believe what you want. I mean, who invented the Pimps Cup? Me. I did. Thank you so much for coming. It's funny you should mention that. Most historians say, at best, it was barroom gossip. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but barroom gossip is a powerful thing. Yeah. And yeah. it's never gone away. Word of mouth. <laughs> drink to that, right? Cheers. Cheers. I have a... Uh, that is really one of my favorite things about this place is that it is famous for a drink they did not invent. Yeah. yeah. Wait, tell us, Chris. Wait, I want to know about the Pimm's Cup. They, well, do tell us. Tell about us. our Pimm's Cup. How many Pimm's do you serve? First of all, what is a Pimm's Cup? A Pimm's Cup. A Pimm's Cup is a drink that was developed in London, right? Um, shortly before the turn of the 
next century, in late 1800s, early 1900s. The gentleman who bought this in its second century of history, that Sicilian family, we call this area of the building Uncle Joe's apartment, right? Yeah. Giuseppe Impostato. By 1900, the French, this opulent residence, the French Quarter had become a slum post-Civil War. So the city, the French Quarter was occupied by nothing but immigrants, and this, um, this young immigrant, Giuseppe, Sicilian from Palermo, bought what was once the mayor's mansion, right, on a loan from another Sicilian. And Giuseppe was a Sicilian, uh, uh, Italian Catholic, right? Yeah. And he, uh, while he enjoyed wine and drinking a little beer and loved, the, he had a grocery store and a little bar and sandwich shop, he did not like whiskey, right? Because we had a lot of Irish here at the time. And the whiskey was the rage here in New Orleans gotcha. in 1900. The Irish came before the Italians. So our bar rooms were full of whiskey drinkers and roughneck Irishmen. And Giuseppe <laughs> thought that was sloppy and unacceptable, right? But he knew of this drink in London that was a low alcohol, Pim's, right? The Pim's uh, aperitif. So it's a gin-based, uh, Pim's number one. Pim's number one. Aperitif, I believe. And he knew this drink that was light and refreshing, and the summers here are kind of oppressive. And, uh, <laughs> sort of. Even the winters can be oppressive here in a mild winter. Uh, and so he introduced this Pim's cup to New Orleans, right? So New Orleans, is, we like to think that New Orleans is not... Uh, that Pim's Cup is not necessarily a New Orleans classic cocktail. It's a Napoleon House classic cocktail because for many years, this was the only place you came in New Orleans to get a Pim's Cup yeah. when Giuseppe introduced it. And he just introduced it because he didn't like hard liquor. So he, so he put this drink on the menu. And it's grown to where we are the second largest outlet for Pim's, the product Pim's Cup, in the world wow. next to the bar in London that introduced it. And at any moment, the people, the distillery at Pim's tell me we're about to surpass that volume. Isn't that crazy? So we that sell is crazy. On, uh, we sell thousands and thousands of Pim's cups a week. And when we're busy, when there's something in, in the city, it's a, it, you know, there's a line for Pim's cups all day long. So we're really proud of that. We do sure. variations of it. But we stick to the old classic. What we sell here is a classic Pim's cup that is uh, over 100 years old, the recipe. And we, we do it the old-fashioned way. There's many ways to make Pim's cups. Of course, you change them a million. Yeah, they have, and they have different cup numbers: one, two, five, nine. You know, and they have different variations on Pim's. Um, classic recipe we'll put online for everybody. Um, it, some people say one and a half, two ounces of Pim's, and then you put um, ice, uh, ginger ale. I like it with ginger beer, ginger ale, mm -hmm. and then cucumber slices. It's just very, very oh, light. Nice. Yeah, and then you can add. Um, obviously, you can add more gin to it. And, um, and then it changes its name to a, a different cocktail. So, but I think where we are in the history of it, I think that the Pims is uh, serves as just a, an amazing uh, cocktail. We're gonna play a little homage to it in a minute, but we're gonna keep talking. So when you change the num, when the numbers changed, mm. it's like one, two, five, twenty-five, whatever. <laughs> Right. Is it, does the recipe change greatly, or is to the, it to the to the spirit itself? Uh, the, what do, what do the numbers signify? The pims that you're using. So there is oh, different pims. So the summer cup pims, not yeah, different recipes. Yeah, different summer cup, winter. Um, they come with like um, Christmas. They have a bunch of different uh, cups that they've come out, like numbers. Gotcha. And then the, and then the cup will change. And then like Wimbledon serves pims with strawberries. So like that's the Wimbledon cup. Gotcha. So like things have changed, but it's Pim's base. 
Gotcha. Yeah, so it's really quite lovely, actually. Nice. And I think strawberries and cucumbers got popular because of that Wimbledon cup together in cocktail. Yeah, well, it's become sort of the, in London, Wimbledon season is PIM season, right? So uh, they sell it by the pitcher, kind of like we do sangria, or used to do sangria. I don't know how much we see sangria these days, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the rosé sangria is going to come back. You know, the rosé all day, and everyone's, like, all into it, I feel like, um, which I've definitely imbibed way too much rosé on that quote. <laughs> um, I think I think that you'll see a little bit more of that, especially also people are trying to like lower the amount of alcohol they're having in a session. Um, not necessarily deleting it, but you know, just a little bit less and more sessionable, palatable cocktails. Right. Yeah, especially in the heat. Now, if you're in London during July, you'll see Pims everywhere. Every pub has a, a, a sign out front, and it looks like a fruit salad because there's lots of variations. In the in, in England today, they've added a lot more fruit, a lot more ingredients to it, kind of like we may or may have done with Bloody Marys here, you know, where you keep adding more and more uh, components to it. We really stick. This is the real base recipe that you, you referred to, and it's just enormously popular. But we do variations of it. We do. Oh, it's Seasonal nice. pims, we call them. Nice to have something well, really you know, refreshing in this mm -hmm. warm weather. All right, well, we're gonna do something really refreshing. Right. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make a cocktail. I I feel like it's time to like break into one. So let's do it. Um, we're gonna start off with a little bit of cherry. So we're not actually gonna use um, pims in this drink. We're gonna use um, just a little bit of uh, black cherry uh, syrup that we made, and we're gonna use three quarters of an ounce. So the colors are the right colors, but we're gonna actually take this a different way. So and then we're gonna take about um, half an ounce of lime for each cocktail. And we're just gonna put a little fresh lime juice in there. And it's gonna, now this drink can go two ways, right? You can make this drink long and dry and just soda water. But we're gonna change this up today and we are going to put activated charcoal oh. in the cocktail. Look at that. Yeah, something just a little bit, a little bit different, very now and hip. You know, you're making a drink for a chef. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of hip, it doesn't A now and hip chef. Exactly, sure. as well you should expect. Well, it is, it is steeped in history and, you know, just making it a little bit differently. So this is um, roast hip, which is a tea. And then we're gonna put four ounces. And we're gonna, one more in there for Louise. And we're gonna make it two different ways. We're gonna make one non-alcoholic and we're gonna make one with alcohol. We're gonna use one ounce of Bombay Sapphire in here. Chef has a long day. Yeah, he does. Long, day. long night, long week. <laughs> He's got a new kitchen. So we're gonna pour one ounce and then we're gonna put a little bit of ice and then we're just gonna top it off with a touch of soda water. When you consider what kind of gin you would put against that, what what do you recommend, Gina? Something dry. Dry? Yeah, because you're gonna, it's tea, it's tea based and like it's a nice long drink and it's kind of like my homage to, you know, what a Pim's Cup is, but just a little less sweet, more, definitely more tart. Um, a little bit like you. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I should be careful, she's making my drink. <laughs> Who's the jackass now? <laughs> I, I mean... Shut up, my smartest moment. <laughs> I know, I'm like, seriously, Louise. Anyway, so when you're doing any cocktail, you're putting a foot of soda water in there, you don't really want to like move it around too much. The soda will work for you, and it's gonna pull everything up and through. And that one's a little bit, you have a little less alcohol in there. And we're gonna stay um, within the moment, and we're gonna keep with the herbs, and we're gonna put just a, two little mint leaves to, to complement your rose hip. I was like, when she compliments my rose hip. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't? 
we're going to push that in. And now everybody knows the new thing is, you know, either you're going to do um, a paper straw or no straw. So we're going yes. naked on these cocktails. Naked. Naked. We're going to get. We're going to get naked. We're going to get naked with it. <laughs> Tell me a little more about charcoal and what am I expecting here? Um, so charcoal is just really, it's like, um, so obviously everybody knows they're made of carbon, right? Is it, right. Is it gross? Do you love no. it? Is it weird for you? No, I like it. No, I, I don't, it, well, because of the gin, that's just, for me, it just kind of pulls all that together and opens up that gin and like I get nice notes, but I, but it's really well balanced and like, again, you could drink this all day. Uh, well, thank you. you. Well, it's me, you're made, so you're made of carbon. So your body right, yes, carbon. Yes, I was carbon. No, I mean, so it's like you in a glass? It's just a nice cleanser. It's just a nice cleanser. And actually people are starting to use charcoal like more of a tea kind of way. So that's why it's made with rose hip and charcoal and they actually steep it and use it in that fashion. I mean, I'm not getting much from a flavor profile of charcoal. No, it's... So is it considered a little somewhat medicinal? Yes, yeah, medicinal. Is it's something medicinal. going on in there? No, it's medicinal. It's medicinal and, and basically it's just really good for you. Like liver, antioxidants, kind of taking that kind of like... You know, the grime out of your food, especially if you eat like um, heavy food or fattening foods and stuff like that, it's just good for you. Something you might do a little bit in New Orleans, maybe mm -hmm. drink a little too much. Filter your like liver a little bit. And then, <laughs> well, you know, fried foods and then, here and there. And then you go the other way and you just dump a bunch of gin in it and then you completely delete it, but then you feel kind of good about it and you're like, what else? Pretending it's healthy. <laughs> you want to try it without it? It's actually really quite beautiful. And if you are in New Orleans or you have like a juice bar, so you know, like I said before, you can go to your uh, local juice place and try these kind of things. So it's really nice. And the black cherry really goes with um, the flavor, what it is, how it tastes. Yeah, you could, I mean, just, I mean, plain. Yeah. It's really. It's refreshing. Yeah. Not what you would imagine from charcoal, yeah. but yeah. it's quite plain. I mean, the rose hip is what you really taste, like that taste right. is it cleans it up and everything. It's a water. I mean, it's just that's what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Um. So I want you to I want I want you to tell a little bit more of the story of here, because I love when so when we were here you took us on our tour. Right. Talk about uh, can you talk about or can you tell everybody a little bit more about the history of what um, the family that lived here and then the apartments and everything is that okay? Sure, okay. sure. Um, so which family which which century would you like me to refer to? Gerard family or the Impostados? I'm the Impostados. I think that they were like my favorite, and maybe because my last name is Cherisavani. I don't know, but that's like that's when it really gets interesting to me. Right, right. So in 1900, right, the uh, the big Sicilian uh, immigration took place, you know, just like in New York City, right. So the two biggest port cities in America, and this family came here in 1901. The Impostado family. If you're from New Orleans. You run into an impostado. There, in the, many restaurants are involved with uh, with that name. Every family has a Vinny, a Giuseppe, a, a Joe, a Vinny, and a Sal for some reason. What do you call so, it? What kind of name so, is that, Gina? So Ginzo name. name. <laughs> for Ginzos. Yes. I can say that. It's okay. Right. Yeah, that's why I, I pitched uh, that one to her. <laughs> but all of those families that we know here know as are descendants of this original family that came here in 1901. And the oldest son, Giuseppe, we call him Uncle Joe again. Yeah. Uh, Saved up that money. He bought this building, right? And his dream was to open a uh, a Italian grocery store, but that quickly became a, a a bar concept. The grocery shelves went away, and we started selling more and more spirits, right? Which led to uh, which led to prohibition. And uh, when they started selling more and more spirits, right? that's kind of one of his legacies. That's part of that Sicilian heritage. And we really got traction as a popular bar during and shortly after Prohibition. Right? How did you get in during Prohibition? Where was the actual bar then? Well, um, 
you know, I've heard different versions. So the bar originally, if you're downstairs, we have a main entrance. And the first thing you see when you walk in the main entrance is our bar. It's yep. beautiful, classic. It's got a, all this great uh, pictures on the wall. But that wasn't where the origin was. That was originally the foyer or the grocery. Oh. And you would go into the main entrance in a little interior room to your left, what we call the emperor's room, now the E-room was where the original bar was. And we still had the back bar against the wall where we'd see, we do seated dinners. Uh, and so that was sort of an interior alcove. Now how you got, there is a separate entrance to that. Uh, but you know, a lot of that sort of history, the early years of the bar, and especially during the Prohibition era, has kind of been lost. I mean, I've asked a lot of questions to the family and I've gotten four or five different versions as to what spirits they made here and so on. But one maybe thing, for good reason. One thing, maybe for good reason. <laughs> At one point in one time. One thing can be said for sure, its popularity as a bar took off in that, in that period of time, right? In the 30s. And, uh, and, and by the 1940s, that's what we were an established bar. By, uh, by World War II, the Napoleon House had become a really prominent locals, working class, not by no means a tourist destination, right? This was a... That was yet to come. This was a hard-drinking Italian <laughs> and Irish hangout where they'd serve really hearty food and lots and lots of alcohol. A sandwich. And a sandwich, A right? sandwich. The muffalata, a sandwich, a staple. The muffalata that we make here, and we feel it's one of the, you know, it's one of those signature New Orleans dishes. Now, if you're in Sicily, in Palermo, and you ask for a muffalata, they give you a loaf of bread, right? It's this big, round loaf of bread with sesame seeds. But if you come to New Orleans and you ask for a muffalata, then you get, it's loaded with cheeses and different salumis, different types of cured meats. And most importantly, the thing that's consistent is this amazing olive salad and really mm. good olive oil, right? So it's a big, thick loaf of uh, bread, uh, hearty enough for a longshoreman to uh, make a meal out of, but it's enormous, right? Yeah. Almost the size of a basketball <laughs> round. And, um, it's like bigger than your face. And it can be shared with three and four people. So uh, we've been doing that. For Depends on how years. hungry you are, right? <laughs> I've seen people eat the whole thing. It's kind of disgusting and, and awesome at the same time. You're like, where did you put it? I mean, like, you look at them and you're like, you're so small. All right. And then like, you know, then you have a food baby and you die a little bit. And where are we now? Because uh, somewhere along the way, Uncle Joe wanted to be a little different than his cousins that were also selling muffaladas at folks at Central Grocery. We began selling them. I did not know that. Yeah, there was relates. Actually, the relationship comes from the baker. Right, the gentleman who baked the bread. That's where there was common uh, uh, family uh, commonality between uh, the cousin of Uncle Joe who ran the Union Bakery, which made all that bread for both Central Grocery and the other entities. Is that gone or still? It's here? gone. It went. It, it finally went out of business at Hurricane Katrina. It was one of those. Wow. Sadly, one of those businesses here in the city that was never able to return. Uh, but all of our established uh, houses make a buffalata buns now, you know, Leidenheimer and, and, and different entities. But we don't do that. We, one of the first things I did was went back to doing artisan, uh, components to the original recipes here and uh because they're very sound and we started baking the muffalata bread to the old recipe the yeah. union uh, bakery recipe so we make it all at our commissary and we ship it in every day fresh and then we heat the muffalata right we run it through a originally it was on a deck oven you know those giant huge cast iron ovens like you see in old, yeah. some old yeah. pizza houses with yeah. a little door on it uh they had those here and they would toast it in a deck oven you know so this bread would get real crispy and crunchy on the outside but that soft and airy on the interior full of olive oil um 
And now we do it in a little more of a modern conveyor oven, but it's the same effect. And we're really proud of that. It's uniquely different than, uh, than some of the other places that sell a cold yep. deli-style sandwich. And we're very well known for that. And that's an ongoing debate here in New Orleans, you know, whether should a muffalata be hot or cold. And you've got these two, two different ongoing, kind of like our gumbos, you know, what, what it should and shouldn't have in it. Uh, so it's a lot of fun, and, uh, and we're really proud of the way we do it. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, they sell a ton of them, and it's amazing. Yes. I had no idea about the central grocery thing. Now that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is, I think I'm impartial to this place for sure. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, Tell, so my favorite other thing I'm going to say, and then I know we're probably, I don't know, don't, you can cut me off whenever, but can you just talk about the pergola a little bit? Like, why why the pergola? The cupola. Cupola, no. cupola. 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 Right. So one of the one of the great fortunes that we've had since we've been here, because we quickly realized we quickly realized we weren't able to uh, we didn't have the resources. We you know we have our own maintenance department, our own engineers and so wow. on. But they work on because we have nine restaurants, yeah. you know, and, and, and they work on all the restaurants and air conditioning. But when we started working on this historic building with some really one of a kind, rare uh uh uh, architecture and so on, it's kind of out of our leaf. So we brought in a gentleman by the name of Robbie Cangelosi, right? He's an historic architect. He does all the work with, he works with the Historic New Orleans Collection and, and advises us how to restore these buildings. And uh, we've had a lot of debates and trying to clean up what I was, well, you know, the family verbal histories, yeah. but then we, he can look at the actual physical aspects of the building and explain it. And one of the things that we're not sure of is why did he did Nicholas Gerard put a cupola on the roof, right? It's actually above the slave quarters, which are on the fourth floor. So we have three stories of apartments here. Um, and on the fourth floor is an attic. It was referred to as the attic, but it was really the original slave quarters. And above that is a cupola, a dome, if you will. Now, they don't know that one, one theory is that because they were in the import-export business and the wharf, the river is right outside the cupola. You're looking down on the, war, the Mississippi River uh, port and it, at the time was just driving. That's where his business came from. So maybe it was something for him to observe his trade. From afar. From, from, and it's really not that yeah. far. It's two blocks. I mean, you're looking right down on the, on the, uh, the port at that time. Uh, but other people have speculated because of some because of some documentation that you can read in the collection that it was the envy of a lot of the other wealthy folks in, in New Orleans at the time. There was a lot of money being, this is the, when New Orleans uh, really started to generate a lot of revenue, right? So uh, some fortunes were made about this time. And a lot of people just speculate that he was showing off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That he had to have a cupola on the top of his highest residence in the French Quarter, which was only exceeded by the St. Louis Cathedral right down the street wow. that you can see from the cupola. And if you'll notice, the Cabildo City Hall had an Italian cupola on the roof. Now remember, this is well before there were any Italian uh, population here in the city. This was during the Creole. So to put this Italian cupola on the roof, but we don't know for sure because it's never mentioned in any of uh, Gerard's writings as to why he needed to put this, but it's an awesome space, right? Yeah, it is awesome. I love it up there. It's it so beautiful. Arguably one of the most amazing views of the French Quarter and the river uh, from, the, from the French Quarter of New Orleans. I mean, I would, I hope that it's somewhere in your, what's going to happen in this building. Like, that's like part of your, like, renaissance of this building because that, 
Well, I just finished the first restoration of it, uh, and that was just the, to to make sure it was sound architecturally. So we finished that last week, as a matter of fact. So it's much more structurally sound. But how to use it? Yeah. I mean, right now, we I take special guests up there, yeah. and uh, and you know sometimes at night candle lit and and uh, I don't know if I can do that. And, you can do it. And but we don't, you know, we don't really use it. We don't rent it or use it for any kind of events. Although we're we're we're, we're going to figure that out. We're going to figure yeah. out as we get to the third and fourth floor. I've asked to live here several times, so <laughs> I would. There are still residents that live here still or no? We have one resident uh, that was that we adopted when we took over three years ago. Um, Nancy, she's been here for eleven years. She lives in the third floor. Uh, while we're not interested in going into the apartment rental business, uh, Nancy is as a real uh, a real benefit to have here she's sort of our custodian and guard 24 hours a day so they're wonderful uh and it's it's a decades-long project before we get to the third floor in the attic but it's all viable space you know it's tremendous Just, amount of we'll footage. call it rustic in its current it's state rustic in its current state that's correct <laughs> but you know i like to say authentic it is. Right. It's. They, I'm just gonna say, if you're standing there alone, you are not alone. <laughs> yeah. No. You may think you are. If there ever were a building with the adage, if these walls could talk, right? Because it's been through yeah. every era of, of New Orleans history, um, starting after those early fires in the French Quarter, and saw you know the Civil War and the and and uh, that whole uh, period of the end of the slave era and into. Uh, all these other immigrations as the population changed. This city's seen it all. And, you know, the home of a, the mayor of an aristocrat here originally and then of a poor family that 20 families lived in this building at one time. Cecilia. I love that. Well, we live together. We live together. We make meatballs. We break bread. We make meatballs. You make them off a lot. So that's why, and that's why you got it now. 200 years, two families. And now the Brennan. So we're the third. Yeah. Uh, but 200 years, that's, that's pretty rare. Yeah, very. Very. Two centuries. Do you think Ralph will move in here one day? You know, who knows? He'll just walk the halls like Uncle Joe. He, he very well may. He very well may. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. It is such a beautiful space. I, we keep saying it, but it, the truth is, like, in every turn, there's always something else to appreciate. Yeah, you got to come here. Like, I mean, I feel like if you come to New Orleans, this is definitely a place. And, like, you'll always see Chris. Like, like, being here and, like, he's an amazing chef and you come eat his food. And... But it's well, like being family. It yeah. really does. I will say that coming here, you you embrace us like family. So thank you. It makes it for a really wonderful time. It is our pleasure. You know, our goal is to expose this amazing building, this iconic uh, uh, hidden treasure. Because if you're a local or a visitor, hardly anyone gets to the city without being exposed to the Napoleon House. But very few people have really gone through the building and even aware of a second floor in our banquet opera. So our goal in the long term is to expose as many people to this amazing building as we can and bring more and more uh, interesting and fun events just like these to the Napoleon House. Well, we'll always come back as long as you'll have us. <laughs> Careful what you ask for, Chris. <laughs> no problem. We may never leave. Yeah. We may never leave. If you have missed anything that Gina has shared while she's making this cocktail, or these cocktails, actually, um, just head on over to designateddrinker.show. That's designateddrinker.show. And uh, you'll find all the recipes, tips, and how-tos. Are you going to stay upstairs in the apartment? I would. I would. I would take residence here. Are you kidding me? I have two brats to bring, but, you know, I mean, I love my kids. <laughs> all right, Gina. Uh, let's, well, I think Chris should call it today. What do you think? Last call? Last call. So, last yeah. call. Yeah. Can we stay? Sure. So, we don't have to go home? 
Then you don't have to go. Actually, I think we should go downstairs, get a mufalada and maybe some pins. Yeah. Break time. Absolutely. I'm in. I'm in. All right. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you, dear. I have a little cheers here as well. Some more charcoal. Thank you.